Hello listeners, uh, welcome to episode two of the Missing Episodes podcast. My name's Paul and I'm your co... Uh, uh, I'm your host uh, this this week. <coughs> no, no, um, I mean, Timmy is supposed to be here, he just uh, isn't. Anyway, you join us, uh, me, live from the outskirts of Paris in the back room of the Sinking Ship pub on the Calais Road. Nice to be out of the Missing Episodes bunker for a change. <laughs> uh, the exotic pub location it feels a bit like one of one of Toby Haydock's Who's Round Rendezvous. <laughs> Only without anyone else to natter to. No one at all. Service really is a... Oh, <laughs> here he is. Where have you been then? It's bad form turning up this late. You've got a thousand eager listeners hanging on your every word. <coughs> well, Paul, I went where you told me to go. Anyway, I think I did. Yes, the sinking ship, Calais Road, Paris. No, no, look at the text. Look at the text. Look at this. Meet me at the sign of Le Chien Gris. Ah. Oh, whoops. So I went there, hung around outside for a bit. Oh, dear. Then suddenly, I completely remembered you'd mumbled something completely coherent about the sinking ship. So I thought I'd give that a go, and here I am. Hoorah! And, listeners, here we are for episode two, The Reign of Terror. First up, I just want to say that we've had a fantastic reception for episode one on Twitter, the forums, Facebook, and I really am delighted and surprised at the uptake. And, Paul, we've had offers of guest appearances. That's right. Uh, we'll uh, we'll keep them in the locker for the time being, but we can tell you that in a while we'll be joined on this episode by none other than Greg Barkin of Kaleidoscope and the From the Archives podcast. Ooh. So, the order of play is that Paul and I will have a natter about the Reign of Terror. Yes, and then so. to save Greg from having to watch the thing again and, and you know, uh, save him a bit of time on getting his thoughts together, he's going to join us for a chat about the animations. So we'll leave those till later, Paul, and a talk about the missing episode situation and the chances of 4 and 5 turning up. Mm. They're, uh, yeah, they seem to have better odds than, than some. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Spoilers. Spoilers. The Reign of Terror. Mm. It's the last serial of season one, the second story afflicted by missing episodes in that four and five are sadly absent in all but a rather scratchy audio copy off air. Mm. Yes, it is a bit. Shall we do it the way we did it for Marco Polo? So the thoughts on Reign in the sort of ongoing development of the show. I say it's the end of the first season and that seems very early from a current retrospective but from the viewer's point of view it had been on for 30 weeks uh, and I find that quite remarkable and so when we see something new when we re-watch which we'll talk about would it have seemed like a relatively big change at the time because they've been in 30 weeks of the swing of things nowadays uh, a program that's on that long is is basically like a soap opera or if not literally a soap then it's one of those soapy dramas like Casualty or Holby or something but I suppose in those days, um, longer runs for for serials and serialised dramas were were not unknown. I mean, weren't some of the uh, the film series like Lancelot and that sort of thing quite long runs as yeah, well? Yeah, indeed. Yeah. yeah. 
So people wouldn't really be expecting the tone to change or the program to evolve. I, I, I guess with most programs of that length, you would know what you're going to get. Yeah. It's quite interesting doing this project in that I haven't watched, since watching Marco Polo, the keys of Marinus, the Aztecs, and the Sensorites. Absolutely. So I'm immediately contrasting and comparing with Marco Polo, and there are some quite stark changes there in how a historical is dealt with. This is the third historical, uh, proper, not the first, not the uh, 100,000 BC. <laughs> oh, but we, we had Marco we well Polo. Well, truly put that to bed last time. Yeah, <laughs> we had Marco Polo by John Lucarotti. Yeah, and then we had the Aztecs by John Lucarotti. Yep, with some similarities, but also some, in many ways, a rather different treatment. Yes, less indeed. of the epic sweep. Indeed, yes, but still the clarity of plotting and so on. Yep. Still the um, educational notes, rich throughout and clearly articulated for the viewer. And then we're presented with the Reign of Terror, which which to me is something completely different. Hmm. It is. And how how quickly do you think people have noticed? I think Spooner's tone in, in uh, the general sense of dialogue and, and feel, that the weight of it is apparent mm. from the very first scene. But um, in terms of the treatment of... Of history, it is based in a very firm, well-known, vivid, potentially mm. quite colourful, yeah, historical moment. But it takes a while for that to get going, doesn't it? Absolutely, it does. Yeah, it's sort of immersed in the in the in the trappings of it, but you don't meet the significant historical characters until later. Yeah, and when you do, they don't have the same weight and gravitas and effect as. Kublai Khan, for instance. No. I mean, yes, that, but there's two sides to that, aren't there? In, in Marco Polo, we aren't left waiting for Marco Polo. He's, he's there within five minutes. Yeah. Whereas here, it's quite a while, it's quite a long time before we meet any, any name figures. Mm. There are several of them. Yeah. You could argue that perhaps choosing one and going into them with a bit more depth might have, might have been preferable. I'll talk about this later on mm. and point out why I think it it perhaps isn't quite as successful as the previous two. Uh, so we meet Dennis Spooner, comedy writer, mate of Terry Nations, and he'd take over straight away as um, script ed editor from David Whittaker. And yet, and without preempting the next historical we look at, The Crusade, that's written by David Whittaker and gets a completely different treatment again. Um, so the historical element, the French Revolution, do you know about it, Paul? I, <laughs> I've got, Have I you schooled in it? You haven't wheeled me onto this podcast to show up my, the limitations of no. my, my general knowledge week after week, have you? But that is, <laughs> that is a, an, an inevitable side effect of me being... No, um, I, I don't think, know about it much I, either. Of course I didn't study it, no. I didn't study it. Uh, this is going to be a recurring theme. We, I think we've mm. established we, none, of us, none of us studied these things. It will be general knowledge for our generation. I did a little, a little Twitter poll again. And whereas Marco Polo, two or three people said they'd done it, a quarter of the people, so nine or ten people, said they did it at school. There's an interview with William Russell that says that he, well, he, he's claimed planting the seed of the 18th century France story. And he claimed that people knew the history back then. And I've, I've checked with my parents and neither of them did the French Revolution at school. But I wonder if it's William Russell's generation because they are immersed in the Scarlet Pimpernel books. Mm. And um, Taylor Two Cities, Dickens' classic. 
Yeah. One apparently one of his best selling well, not just Dickens' best-selling novels, but one of the best-selling novels of all time, it's claimed. It was the songs that remind us of the best times. It was the song that reminds us of the bad times. You'll get knocked down in a minute, Tim. Oh, uh, dear. So, yes, they are going through history's greatest hits, aren't they? Hmm. But what do you think they're expecting Mr. Spooner to bring to it? I don't imagine they're expecting comedy, because it's not normally uh, this, the era of history you go to for a laugh riot. I'm not sure. I think it was just maybe blooding him on a story before or trying mm. him out for the script editor role. I, I suspected that it didn't need to be prescriptive with the history lesson because people would be so immersed in it as per okay. William Russell's contention. But I don't get that sense at all. And so uh, it might be a failing of, of the script for me in that I'd like to be entertained by a history lesson. In that I, I, Not that I'm not entertained by the comedy elements throughout this. I suppose it's possible, but um, it's one thing to have it as a one-line pitch for Doctor Who from Sydney New, and this is going to inform, mm. educate, and entertain um, in its midi-Rethian fashion. Yeah. But without being too prescriptive about how much knowledge is imparted and how much knowledge is, is assumed. I don't necessarily think that what we think of as the, um, as the lack of clear historical context on screen is just because they would have assumed the viewers of the day would have known all that. I think it's to do with Spooner's particular approach. But, I mean, it's inarguable that there is that it's nowhere near as clear or encapsulated as it is in Marco Polo, is it? No. Uh, Spooner admitted to ripping off, uh, <laughs> paying homage to the Scarlet Pimpernel, but he does it in rather a funny way for me, in that he splits the Scarlet Pimpernel character into two of his Reign of Terror characters. In that the swashbuckling hero who rescues people off carts going to the guillotine is one character, Jean Reno. Mm. And the other element of the Scarlet Pimpernel, the, the English aristocrat disguised as a Frenchman, is um, Le Maitre. Well, far be it from me to, <laughs> to point the finger at Dennis Spooner, but I feel that's kind of missing the point. Because if you split the Scarlet Pimpernel <laughs> yes. into two characters, you have two boring characters. <laughs> what it's missing, I mean, it does point to what I think is the thing that's missing here. He's clearly aware of the Scarlet Pimpernel as one of his influences, mm. but we don't have we don't have any of the fun or pulpy joy of the original novel, or indeed it's um, 2000 sequels. <laughs> they're not swashbucklers, they're not romps, but they are a lot more fun than James Sterling, who is <laughs> an extremely dry character and just gets drier and drier as we go on, and Jean yeah. is... It is a strange mixture, isn't it, of the pulpy fictional idea of the Fre French Revolution yeah. and the dry textbook historical reality. And it seems, to, to my money, it almost, it almost takes the worst of both worlds. Yeah. It's not as much fun as it would have been if it had gone for a proper Scarlet Pimpernel pastiche. And it's not as edifying as it would have been if it had taken us through it more methodically. Yes, indeed, indeed. It's not carry on, don't lose your head, is it? Which is what I want it to be, really. Yeah, I think it would have been better if it had been. Yeah. I don't think you could really take the um, the very serious-minded Marco Polo approach with this because it would just be far too grim, wouldn't mm. it? Yeah, it, it tries to be grim. But yes, it's dealt I mean... With so lackadaisically that you just forget, and, and I'll talk about this later, but the procession of characters throughout who come and go and get killed or, or disappear off and don't appear again, you don't get any connection with them. 
you don't feel any sympathy if something bad happens. Yeah, so if you take Leon, for instance, he comes in, there's a bit of an episode of him being a romantic interest for Barbara, and then it turns out he's a spy, and then he's done with. He is. In four scenes, five scenes. There's four scenes with Robespierre. There's, there's, nobody gets long enough in front of the camera for you to give a damn about them. No, I mean, if one was being uncharitable, you could say it's rather clumsily written, but Dennis Spooner isn't a clumsy writer. No. Of course. <laughs> he wouldn't have had the career he had. So I, I find myself intrigued as to why it, how it ended up like this. Hmm. Is it the tension between Spooner's natural instincts and David Whittaker, as script editor, trying to carry out Sidney Newman's orders, hmm. do you think? Don't know. Don't know. It's clearly a story uh, representing a genre in flux. It's the hmm. Doctor Who historical emerging from its chrysalis to become hmm. what it would be forevermore i say forevermore until they stop doing them of course yeah you see spooner trying to fight through the stodge don't you you see very clear i'll call them spoonerisms <laughs> which we will see manifold more instances of in uh the romans uh but you know the encounter with the foreman on the road the the encounter in the tailor shop the doctor going on a long journey throughout a historical period by himself uh, that sort of thing. It feels a bit like a dress rehearsal for the Romans. It absolutely uh, does. Yeah. And the Romans is very similar, but shorter, told with more economy, and a much more a certain tone, isn't it? Yes, it is. And uh, behind the scenes, it was interesting times on this one. Uh, you had a new Hungarian director, Henrik Hirsch. Yes. Melt down. Either because he was used to better things, used to much or because a horse kept shitting on the studio floor one or the other <laughs> yeah i know you like the the titles of the makings of paul uh the one on the mm. reign of terror dvd is called don't lose your head which is a bit of a double entendre it's not bad is that's it? much much better it's one of chris chapman's so perhaps that explains <laughs> why it's less punningly prosaic <laughs> yes thank you we've got the first instance of location filming 30 weeks in mm. that's something isn't it Brian yeah. Proudfoot mincing along in his big wig. I was expecting it to look sillier because people talk about it so much, <laughs> Tressie. Um, and possibly because I'm more familiar with that um, Edmund Warwick very unsuccessfully doubling for, <laughs> for Harley and the Chase, but obviously in different circumstances. But it, uh, it yeah. doesn't look too bad at all. Yeah, no, it's quite good. There's one shot from the front which looks particularly unconvincing. He's got a particularly mulletish look about him but hmm. from 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 behind i think he looks absolutely spot on but again it is interesting that they don't attempt outdoor filming for 30 weeks of it i i don't know what the what prevented them from no. doing it before was it always on the books was it something they were trying to avoid deliberately for some reason Maybe the stories always... didn't didn't allow for that or demand it or demand it yeah interesting uh one other thing um Oh, a couple of other things that I I, I observed. Uh, I was quite thrown off watching it by the um, by the picture quality. So mm -hmm. so one and two are suppressed field, meaning that there is uh, less picture in the frame. So everything feels a little bit too close up. You can't really see the full breadth of the action as intended, but it feels very close up. And lower quality images. Of and lower quality image. Three and six are stored fields, so you get it more as intended. And then you've got three and four animations, so it never really settled for me. I, and I was thinking, is that the direction? And then no, I realized it was the picture size that was putting me off. 
<laughs> but a more interesting sidetrack is the music. And the music was fine, and there was lots of it recorded. But it was recorded by a guy called Stanley Myers. And Stanley, that was Stanley Myers' only work for Doctor Who. And I was searching online for a clean copy of the soundtrack in case I wanted to uh, use a little bit, a bit of it here. And I couldn't find any. But I did find that he produced a piece of music called Cavatina for a film called The Walking Stick. And a few years after that, it was repurposed for The Deer Hunter. The famous Deer the Hunter piece. The famous Deer Hunter piece. Right. Was written by Stanley Myers. Which later became the gallery theme from take heart <laughs> well done Stanley Myers I'm glad he came good characterisation Paul mm. shall, we, shall we run through the, the regulars and anyone else of note and see see where they are on their journey, or first exactly. and last. Exactly, we, 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 we can't draw too many conclusions, because as, as you said, we've skipped over a few stories. So one of our problems we might have with this strange game of hopscotch we're taking through Doctor Who's history is spotting massive changes in the last thing we watched. But the Doctor has been is definitely the softened version here. But I, I think right from the very beginning, when he... I didn't rewatch the cliffhanger from the end of the Sensorites. But it's rather sudden and overwritten, isn't it? The way contrived, he contrived, yeah, contrived. Yeah. Whereas I always get the feeling that here that um, Spooner is deliberately underplaying that. Is thinking, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna write anything that contrived and melodramatic, and he undercuts <laughs> it completely. Yeah. The Doctor is played completely differently. Ian and Barbara aren't genuinely offended by the Doctor's actions. It's perfectly clear to the audience that he's as much hurt by the thought that they might be leaving him as he is. Hmm trying to get rid of them and it's all done very nicely the the first quarter of an hour really is all quite understated because you know they, he doesn't get contrived pathos out of the idea that they think they're home mm. they suspect that it's not it's not yeah, really they, home right from they're the not beginning. having it are they in, yeah. in fact they <laughs> they assume it won't be because they don't trust him <laughs> by now and as soon as they step out they start spotting clues i mean you know other writers would possibly have milked that for an episode I think Terry Nation would have done. Um, <laughs> so I think you know it's it's all very nice the opening. Yeah, and it and it and it very nicely sets up their mm. their relationships. Yeah, Susan's but... at her best in the first half, the first episode, and it's all precipitously downhill <laughs> after there. Just to go back to the Doctor, I found, yeah. it, I found it interesting, and I think it's the first time, and it's the first time of many that Spooner just writes him as this sort of. Practical joker, con man, hoodwinker, confidence trickster. Throughout every episode, he has yes, two yeah. to six. He has a set piece in the script where he's pulling the wool over someone's eyes. You know, with his guile and wit, Hartnell's at his best. He's loving it, and it's obviously his strength. But I think this is the first time we've seen that. Um, Ian Chesterton, man of action. Anything interesting to say about Ian? I didn't spot anything particularly new in in Ian he's just doing his Ian thing he is what what the thing I did find interesting is that he was on holiday in yes. France funnily enough for episodes two and three and all this stuff is shot on film yeah but there's rather a lot on it of it, it. exactly uh, exactly what I was going to say 
It's yeah. almost unprecedented, isn't it? In the Keys of Marinus, when the do- when Hartnell needs a holiday, he just sods off exploring by himself for a while. Or yeah. Susan, when she has a holiday in the Aztecs, she goes off to a, a seminary or something. And I can't yeah. remember when Barbara has her break. But it tells me, or it said to me, that they can't manage without the character. That's exactly what I was going to say. Well done. Yeah, even with even with Ian's holiday pre-film stuff, he's still got more to do than Susan. Yeah, now that was a dawning re- realization. I was thinking, yeah. <laughs> okay, we know that we know that a lot of the time people disappear on holiday; they're not in it at all, or maybe they filmed, you know, ten seconds worth of stuff. And I started thinking if there are any other examples. And as you say, I was working from the bottom up, thinking Susan. They didn't bother trying to fit cover for Susan in the Aztecs because who cares? But it's when I realised that they <laughs> that the Doctor can disappear for whole episodes, but apparently Ian can't. I'm sorry, I'm just repeating what you were going to say, but it is that, that is possibly the surest on-screen indication, even at this stage, when yeah. the Doctor is becoming the title character. It's almost like something's changed in between when it was commissioned, when they thought that Ian had to be there mm. every week, and when it's by the time it's written. The Doctor is clearly the stronger character, both in terms of hmm. falling action as well as as wanting to see him on the screen. Interesting, isn't it? Barbara had a bit of a mixed bag, didn't she? Not much in the first half and then sort of comes into her own rather in the second half, doesn't she? Yeah. Yes, all these young people who are far more at sure that Ian and Barbara are a couple than, than us old guard fans. <laughs> who, you, who just sort of had half a mind that, yeah, possibly they were, but... <laughs> But the London 1965 Brigade uh, will be horrified to see her lusting after um, Mr. Meeker. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. And then, and then she's sympathetic to his um, treachery. She or, is, or, or now, patriotism. Again, we're not, we've skipped a few stories here, but she was clearly the moral compass in the Aztecs. Hmm. Yeah. Here, she is the of our leads. She is the only one who strongly makes the case for there being two sides to this story. And in fact, West, you yeah. shouldn't say there are two sides, does she? She says the revolution had noble aims. Yeah. And he's, he was a good, there are good people on that side and that Leon was one of them. Yeah. And Ian won't have any of it, will he? No. He's, he's no. so much man of action, Ian, here, that yeah. he deserved what he got. So I, I, I've put possible revolutionary question mark in my notes because, you know, she was prepared to overturn Aztec civilization last, last time she was back in history and here... And then poor old Susan. Oh, God. Is it oh. any wonder she left? Mm. She she has got absolutely nothing to do here, apart from be ill. In About Time, either Tat mm. or Lawrence uh, suggests that she's really suffered from the elevation of the Doctor's character. Mm. And uh, I think that could well be part of it. Yeah. It's not the only problem. A lot of the writers had, had trouble writing for the spunky version of Susan that was in the original pitch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they're having difficulty writing for her, aren't they? They fi- they have a lot easier time writing for Vicky when she comes in because she can do wide-eyed and innocent and um, a stranger to it all. So they can do a lot more exposition towards uh, Vicky. But yeah, they're really struggling for. It's difficult writing to know what's gone wrong. It seems to be a bit of everything. Yeah. What of the other forty-three thousand characters that that come and go throughout? Hmm. Um, it's hard to get to know any of them. You've already said Lemaitre James Sterling is a bit dry. Hmm. The other characters, I, I found it interesting, but I think it's one of the reasons that it isn't as successful as it might be, is that none of the characters are consistent. And that could be an exciting thing in itself. So at the start, you get 
they're either inconsistent because they don't last very long or they're inconsistent in how they behave versus your expectation. So in the first episode, you get some very impressive, meaty, dissenting soldiers who turn up. And you think, yeah, I could, they're, they're rather threatening. I could, I could put up with some of this for a few more episodes. You sort of get nowhere the threat is there and the anger. Mm. And the most three interesting soldier characters in the entire thing just disappear. You don't see them again. You've got the guy who turns up at the start, Rouvray, and his mate, Dar, Dar Jensen? Yeah. Something like that. Something like that. Who, who, who are quite interesting, and they get dispatched straight away. You've got a parade of characters for, for six episodes. Only a couple of them stick. Leon is around for about four scenes. Webster is around for one scene. You've got the tailor, the physician, the foreman. Robespierre has about four scenes. Now, Robespierre is inconsistent. You want him to be the tyrant of France, but he's actually, I found him to be quite a sympathetic character. And so what I think is lacking in this is what you criticised in Marco Polo, but I thought it was okay, or more okay, is you, you're missing the moustache-twirling villain. You have it in Marco Polo, mm. even though you can be sympathetic in the end to Tigana's Did character. I criticise that? Well, I shouldn't have done. Mm. No, you said, you, said, you said that Tatwood had said he's too moustache-twirling. Right. And ag- agreed with that. Yeah, so in the Aztecs, you've got Tatoxil, who's moustache-twirling, but you can be sympathetic towards him. Mm. But when you get to the meaty bad guys who should be bad guys in Rain, they're not meaty bad guys. Robespierre, no. who is supposed to be the worst of the lot in the story, you know, quite sympathetic. He gets talked down by the doctor, and Robespierre sort of agrees that it could be going better, and then he gets shot in the face and executed. And I think that's an element that's missing in this story. It's all very well to give your characters three dimensions, and of yeah. course you should, And you, but you yeah. can do that. You can do that in a standard Doctor Who action-adventure format. This is not the programme to to be lily-livered and never settle on saying anybody is the representation of villainy in this one story because this is all about context. Yes. it's um, yeah. he's, he's trying so hard, really. To, I, mean, <laughs> I was about to say he's trying so hard to give you know, balance and show good and bad on both sides. Yes, he is. Oh, yeah. It's not like every minute that's on screen, but there are examples of that that interrupt the story ever so often. If you don't think any of the real-life characters are villainous enough for your purposes, then invent one, because that's what most of the historical stories going forward will do. The one invented character that is persistent throughout, and it is a villain, inverted commas, is the jailer. <laughs> and he, he's written like a, a standard British comedic character full of hubris and uh, false pride and so on isn't he and he 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 has no threat about him at all and he's the most consistently villainous character in the piece it's a low-level working class sort of villainy which some some commentators have trouble with it doesn't bother me it's a british Mm. it's a british archetype i was absolutely shocked about his approach to barbara Uh, when they first meet he says well you know i could leave a door open if um if you help me relieve my loneliness, and he grabs her. And I thought, <laughs> wow, that's a bit adult. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, yes, it is. It's more adult even than the situation she ended up in in the Keys of Marinus, isn't it, with the the naughty chap in the fur coat. Shh, the poor Barbara. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Constantly getting unwanted attentions, all these seedy men. Yeah. Yeah, Ian's not bothered, is he? <laughs>
Anyway, the story itself, Paul, watching it, did you enjoy it? Did you struggle um, with it? Uh, somewhere in between those two. I didn't enjoy it as much as I hoped I would. I wouldn't say struggle. I think I was more confused by the um, by the changing by the changing tone, trying to work out exactly what it was and, and whether it was yeah. falling short on some in some level that didn't seem entirely fair. Was it falling short by its own standards or because of what I wanted it to be? Because of what I know it could have been if it had been done a year or two later. I know when I watched it last time, I, I rated it rather highly, and I think you did, you know, on, yeah. on the score. I think I gave it a seven. And then I watched it again. I wasn't paying it my fullest attention, and when I sort of tuned back into it, I was completely confused and therefore didn't really enjoy it, and I was off-put by the, you know, the difference in frame size and the, <laughs> the leap between animation and the animation style and so on. But I, the second time I watched it, I really rather enjoyed it. Mm. I think that was because I felt good at figuring out what the hell was going on. My main joy was in cracking the confusing pub <laughs> situation, which we'll talk about. Oh, thank. <laughs> I'm glad you my... worked it out. Uh, how many, yeah. Sorry, how, so it takes three viewings minimum, does it? To two viewings in right. earnest. Yeah, in quick succession. <laughs> now, I, you know what? I didn't really enjoy it as much as I. It definitely, definitely picks up speed, but the fact that it's, it seems to meander the plot, and but not not in the same way that stories like Marco with a, an epic sweep, which meandered geographically. Yeah. And there are other stories with a lot of characters. I don't think I'm going to have the same problem with the Crusade when we get to that. So it was difficult for me to put my finger on why I was finding it so annoying. <laughs> but I think it does suffer from a series of false starts. Nobody we meet in the first episode, I don't think, um, Reappears, carries no. forward. And the lack of a clear villain until quite late mm. in the day, which is then split into several, in several mm. directions. You, you're never quite sure. The fact that the mysteries are unsatisfying... And the twists are only intermittently impactful. Yeah, there's a lot of back and forth. The plotting is dodgy, I would say. There's lots of escaping, recapture, near misses. You know, Ian escapes to find the safe house, mm. having just escaped himself, to find that the ladies have been recaptured. And it's back and forth and back and forth, and then Ian breaks them out of prison in two separate... Uh, no, sorry, the Doctor breaks them out of the conciergerie prison, the the ladies, you know, in two stages. There's a lot of back and forth, isn't there? Yeah. I enjoyed it. I did enjoy it. I enjoyed it because it's early Doctor Who. And I enjoy that. I enjoyed the characters. I enjoyed the lighter moments, and I thought they fired, but they're just in an odd context. I enjoyed the the episodic instance of the Doctor winning the day against the Jailer or the Tailor or uh, Robespierre. I enjoyed those. There are enough moments in there to get me through the rest of it. The mm. chop and change of characters, the animation, the, the 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 different frame sizes, which was jarring. There was enough there to get me through and leave me reflecting on that, thinking it wasn't bad. As you say, there are lots of great moments and there is a lot of dodgy plotting. And it's interesting to watch as well. It's interesting to watch because of its flaws, because of its deficiencies, but also seeing what is emerging into that period and you know better stuff is coming and you can see a changing of the guard here 
from Whitaker to Spooner, and you can see yep. the Spoonerisms throughout, and you know that's coming. So it's an interesting exercise in in watching it. I'd like to be able to try and watch it without my Doctor Who fan hat on, head on. <laughs> if I could take off both my Doctor Who fan head and hat, I might be able to get away with it. But unfortunately, I can't watch it without thinking context, context, context. Mm. I wonder what it was like watching it over six weeks. Extremely because difficult you, to follow, I assume. A, yeah, because you've got a week to forget the characters. You've got to watch this in one sitting. And goodness knows what they made. I mean, I don't suppose the Shangri sinking ship dilemma would have been an issue because six weeks on, no one would have remembered what Webster said on his deathbed anyway. I could barely remember the next day. But <laughs> no, I mean, you, you could definitely edit this down, what we've got, into a very good yeah. four part story. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I think somebody should try it. I'll put it on my list when I learn video editing, which I think Greg is going to teach me. <laughs> Maybe I'll put that, you know, somewhere in my top hundred projects. Edit Reign of Terror to a decent four-parter. I'm going to explain the uh, the Shangri sinking ship yeah, situation I, I for you. Literally, can't wait to 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 wrap up the review section. But I should also point out that. It's missing. The whole story is missing one crucial thing to a story set in the French Revolution. Mm. What, what is it? A gu Madame Guillotine. Yeah. Episode two is called Guests of Madame Guillotine. And I think we get one stock photograph of one. Even to the Tom and Jerry cartoon set in the French Revolution <laughs> has a guillotine in it. <laughs> I know. Where's the guillotine? They don't have a scene on, you know... The episode one cliffhanger for, for the Mask of Mandragora manages <laughs> manages to do a beheading. But the story's set in the French Revolution. Well, yeah, we have somebody's jaw getting shot off, which is rather more unpleasant than yeah. a nice, quick, Bizarre, clean, swift decapitation. Okay, the Shangri. Yes, oh, which also, by the way, is a re there's a, a chat, chat, a chagri in the Scarlet Pimpernel. Ah, So that's I see. probably... The clearest link between the two, clearer than anything that would have been usefully cribbed. Uh, so Webster is on his deathbed, and he says to Ian, find James Sterling and tell him to get back to England, is the gist of what he's saying. Ask for Jules Renault, and then the sign of the chien gris. The next time we hear about what Webster had said is in episode six. However, if you've got good ears, in episode three, Ian is found outside an inn asking around for Jean Renault, Jules Renault. Hmm. This is all done in exposition. We don't see it. But but the war chief explains to <laughs> um the, the to to Barbara and he, the, they found someone wandering around outside an inn on the outskirts of Paris asking for Renault. So that bit is explained. It's explained very badly, but that bit is dealt with, squared off, done. Cut to episode six, <laughs> and then Ian also reveals <laughs> that Webster had also said. Something to do with Paul Barat and a pu another pub called The Sinking Ship. Right. And then we go to The Sinking Ship, where we are sat now, Paul. 
Oh, we we are. Yes, yes. Um, I'm still waiting to be served. Really, <laughs> I was hoping Ian and Barbara would still be working here, as you know, they haven't aged. Yeah. So it works in the sense that it makes sense. But what doesn't make sense is that they don't show Webster at the start talking about Barra and the sinking ship, and only the Shangri and Renault. I'm sorry, but it is very dr- dramatically clumsy for there to it be is, two pubs, two, me- two meetings, <laughs> two different people it in two is. different pubs. It is. And for that, it, that's a bad idea for one story. It's a bad idea for both of those things being parted by one from one character to another character. Indeed, and for one of them not to be seen to be an imparted. It's almost as if they've edited out a scene. Which leads to the idea that they changed the pub name halfway through and forgot what they'd said in the first place, which is not what they do. But, mm. you know, you don't get a pub for 30 weeks and you get two in one story. Only one of them is directly alluded to. Spoon is very keen on pubs, isn't he? Because at the very beginning, when the Doctor wants to just dump in and Barbara and without hanging around and says well can't we just stay around for a, for a pint so now we're joined by greg backen of the from the archive blog podcast kaleidoscope member philanthropist master chef definitely philanthropist is really what i'm known most for you know everyone always knows i'm i'm a very giving individual so you know thank you for thank you for acknowledging it i appreciate it well how are you both tonight absolutely fantastic very well i, I would take your order your drinks order but i don't think there's much point unless <laughs> you can hang around till tomorrow we've wheeled you out to talk about animations and mm-hmm. we've wheeled you out to talk about missing episodes because i know that's a passion of yours Yep. But first of all, Greg, I saw you busying yourself with every uh, Doctor Who fan's annual duty, which is totting up the number of Spearhead from Space <laughs> <laughs> um, releases on, was that on Twitter, was it? Yeah, it was on Twitter. I figured, you know, why, why don't we take a look at how much money I've wasted over the course of my life by <laughs> sharing, for example, just how many versions of Spirit from Space I have on home media, let alone the fact that I still own them all and haven't either given them away or thrown them <laughs> out. So, yeah, no, it's it's funny how, you know, I was thinking about it, and you get, I don't know about you two, I get nostalgic looking at those covers uh, and start thinking about like mm-hmm. where I started watching these to what's available now. And as much as I love all the stuff that has been released from like the restoration team and whatnot, I just still love to go back to those early VHSs or those bootlegs and just watch them and just have that nostalgic feel of what it was like to get these at the time. Interesting enough, Reign of Terror is one that I'm not, I know exactly what you mean about the nostalgia for the VHSs, but I can't feel that for Rain because I'm not sure I ever bought it. Was it the last one of the last releases? It was. It was wrapping up around that time for sure. Uh, Rain of Terror is is actually deeply nostalgic for me because it's one of those that I watched as a bootleg at a friend's house, uh, not really into the Hartnell stories at the time falling asleep when we were dubbing because we had these parties where we'd dub VHS tapes for each other, waking up to the cliffhanger to episode one where uh, the doctor's trapped in the burning house and being like, whoa, okay, <laughs> what's this? And, and when it was released on VHS, whenever that was, how did they cover it? Was it linking narration or something? Yeah, so it was released 
it was released on VHS in 2003. In fact, that was the last VHS release in the uh-huh. UK. Uh, that also had uh, the other uh, tape with it that included uh, Web of Fear, episode one, plus the two Faceless One episodes on on their own tape. Uh. And uh, the the VHS did have a kind of, I believe, an updated version of that linking narration that uh, Carol Ann Ford had recorded. And they updated in the sense that I think Ed Stradling, of, of all people, if I'm not mistaken, put you know worked it out so that there was more meat to it and uh and and kind of put all that together and released it that way yeah because john nathan turner wrote those link narrations didn't he in the early 90s and filmed them all and they were they could have really been much more brief and laconic if they tried could they those scripts <laughs> <laughs> it's true <laughs> happy days and then they forgot to they forgot to put them on the dvd i seem to remember but um the the funny thing about that too is like yeah they were they were very sparse there were very little to them but yet we I mean maybe I'm speaking for myself just lapped them up at the time because there was nothing else I mean if if somebody would have told me back in 1993 when they were going to re release or re release this uh, VHS of the Reign of Terror just with that linking narration. I would have been, but if they told me that in 2013 we'd have a DVD and all this stuff and animation and whatnot, I just wouldn't have believed it. All that, all that attention put to Doctor Who. Sure, mm-hmm. we're spoiled rotten. Sadly, I, I just don't have the storage space and uh, to retain all the um, the VHSs. I, I've, I think I've kept three in a cupboard: uh, Revenge of the Cybermen VHS, which is the first one we got, uh, The Seeds of Death because that was the second one I got, and then a uh, assigned Pertwee years. I think that's all I kept. I can't watch them anyway. Uh, did you keep yours, Paul? I don't want to make Greg cry, but um, I was happy to get rid of them. <laughs> <laughs> the, only thing, the only thing I was upset about is that I missed, the, I missed the boat. I could have made a fortune if I'd sold them a bit earlier, but I, was, I hedged my bets thinking, oh, will they, will they re-release them on DVD? What if they stop? And, <laughs> and then I've, um, I've already got rid of them. I agree. And and the thing is, too, is the, that's the reason why I'm going through them, because I am backing them up as digital files. And from there, there's no guarantee I'm holding on to them because I like, like how many how, how long do I need to hold these things for? You know, there's, uh, you know, hundred and some VHS tapes. And uh, mm. if anything, and this will probably make some people start to cry is at, at the very least, I just might take the covers out of the cases because I collected <laughs> all the PAL cases so I can keep the covers and then toss everything else because honestly I can't I can't hold on to this stuff for the rest of my life it's it is kind of like a weight that's around your around your neck when you're trying they're never to they're move. never going to gain value are they no and you know the thing about Doctor Who in general and I, I I gladly do this I'm just going to say it as it is though sometimes it feels a bit like a mortgage payment because it yeah. it's, it's a regular payment of some kind to collect <laughs> Doctor Who and I don't even collect I mean I have not I've listened to like three big finishes in my entire life not to say that they're bad I just haven't listened to a ton of them but you know I've collected all the media you know all the episodes over and over and over right. again right let alone the fact all of us probably had our either bootleg or off-air recordings or whatever, that those are a, a, a multiple number of tapes also. <laughs> Confession time, Greg. That's two more than what I've listened to. But it's a good job that we don't have a big finish writer on with us tonight, isn't it? Yeah, because it'd, be, <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be very offended. And we'd, 
<laughs> wouldn't know what to say next. I'll tell you what, I, I'll, I'll change the subject. <laughs> so, <laughs> Paul, Paul, hold, hold on, Paul. What, what have you, which ones have you written, or have you written too many to talk about? I'm just curious, because then I'll, I'll give them a listen. It, it is too many for a brief digression here, but I did, uh, most of what I wrote was Jaguar Lightfoot. Okay, um, okay. About half of what I did was Jaguar Lightfoot, and the rest was just one each of all sorts of ranges. And, and, and a very nice uh, Peter Davison, Fifth Doctor Nisran Teagan story, which... Uh, has been getting a, a revival on Twitter recently. People have been saying some very nice things about it. Aquitaine, check it out. All right, I will, yeah. absolutely. Tim will cut that bit, but, um, but at least <laughs> it'll live on in your memory if nowhere else. <laughs> I'm going to bring this to order. You mentioned the DVD and how you would never have guessed a decade earlier what riches awaited us in the DVD era. And of course, Reign of Terror, uh, that might have been a bit light on extras in some way, some ways, it unexpectedly reinvigorated the animation um, side of the DVD range. In yeah. fact, it also it actually created it because the invasion was not re- was not made for DVD. So this was the first ah. first time somebody was able to demonstrate that you could animate stories on a DVD budget, mm-hmm. was it not? And this was the brainchild yeah. of Dan Hall, yeah. everyone's friend Dan Hall, who was running the range f- um, from his company Pup Limited. Yeah, and um, I believe he chose. Reign of Terror. Actually, no. Can anyone else remember why? What his stated reasons were for choosing Reign to start with? I want to say that it was enough episode. It wasn't too many episodes, but it was more than one, and didn't have a massive cast to animate. If I'm not mistaken. Yep. Yep. It. Um, yeah. There's that two episode maximum at, back in the day. And it fitted it fitted all the criteria. Uh, he then, I think he didn't he go and ask Paul Venezes, is, "Is there any reason why I shouldn't do this one?" And Paul said, "Yes, I'd leave it till last because I think it's probably one of the most likely to turn up." <laughs> <laughs> and then he did it anyway. <laughs> yes, and Paul Paul told that story with no small relish on Gallifrey Base, was it? <laughs> and we'll be moving on to this a bit later on, but they, um, but your involvement, but they did try out several different companies, got test pitches in, and they settled upon, were they called Planet 55 right from the beginning? It was Thetimation right from the start, yeah. Yeah, which is a big a spin-off of Big Finish in the sense that it's owned by Jason Hager Ellery, based mm-hmm. in Australia. I think the idea behind the company was always to use this as a test run and then move into original projects of television, which they ultimately did mm-hmm. um, briefly. Yeah. So it was a chap called Austin Atkinson who um, wrote a big finish back in the early days, so that's how we would have known ah. Jason. I think he produced and, and directed it himself, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so, actually. So when people are a bit snippy about some of the directing choices, which would also cover editing, um, I seem to remember him taking it a bit personally. And, and I think, though, I think it's unfair that it went directly to him. And I can explain so a little bit more when we get to my, my involvement with, um, with the animation side of it. Because I found that we were getting direction right from the start of what Dan wanted to see. Oh, so, um, yeah, let's, let's just go through the choices they made. It's, uh, <laughs> what do we think... I mean, it's very different, isn't it, from the... Be- <laughs> I don't know why you laughed at the... <laughs> I wasn't implying anything by my my level, my measured tones of the choices they made. No, it's very different from the... It's very different from the Cosgrove Hall style that we'd seen and, and have gone down very well on on Invasion. It's, it's, they're going for a much more... A less cartoony, more... 
I don't know for technical terms. I'm just going to say less cartoony. It, it does have a little bit more realistic look to it. And one of the, one of the mm. key points, I think, that they were trying to use to cut down on the uh, the cost was trying to take real footage and rotoscoping the footage out of out of out of an episode or something and then overlaying yeah. their animated piece you know, like I'm creating their animation from that so if there's like any real tricky moves um, you can see it because there there seems to be not only kind of a lack of quality loss but also you know the the character might be less defined in general to to kind of create this yes. this them yeah. falling over or something that's something i think of as quite distinctive to their style it carries through even though there's a lot of changes after rain it does carry through into um 10th planet and moon base Absolutely. whenever there's a bit of rotos rotoscoping facial features tend to become very indistinct it's more about getting the the shape of the movement so yeah. it's interesting to hear you say that you think that would be a cost cutting measure i would have thought rotoscoping would have been one of the more expensive parts of by, by, I mean, for a start, you can only use each bit once, whereas all the other, all the other positions they you draw the characters They didn't use each bit in. once, though. They didn't. There's a, a maneuver <laughs> by Hartnell with his cloak that they use at least twice. Yeah. If if it's a, I mean, it's it's and it's very simply me saying, which is there is more to it than that. I mean, there is there is kind of just like an overlay of the of the actual footage to give that rotoscope you know of that that definition the thing is if it's something where you know someone's turning a lot or there's some real real like work with legs or something then you end up having to create new models for all that and each movement is is going to have to be a recreation of that model where rotoscoping is almost basically like tracing you're tracing yeah. in this yeah. case you're tracing that action and it's going to take it, that's what and that's why it, it in my opinion that's why it looks a little bit more or less defined because you're just quickly trait you're tracing it and giving more of the impression than actually you know the the detail as the characters normally would have in just a standing uh shot so the flip side of that, so as you say, the rotoscoping is used for these specific moments, but then you've got general purpose postures for the rest of the time. Mm -hmm. And one thing I thought was interesting about Rain, which I've very rarely heard anyone talk about, <laughs> it's probably not very interesting, that's why, <laughs> but in in their publicity, they bigged up this process called, so the company was called Thetamation, was it? They bigged up a process called Thetamation. They said they'd invented it, it was a brand new type of animation, it was going to change the world. And then it sort of dis disappeared from publicity because it, uh, during the long gestation of the project. But when it showed up, there was one quite distinctive animation style, which I can only assume was their thetamation. And it's that they, a way of sort of projecting the drawing of a character's face onto a, a semi-3D model so that mm -hmm. you can rotate it within a certain, with certain parameters. You can rotate a little bit left and right, a little bit up and down. So from one drawing, which was, you know, the artist has just done one profile drawing, but then the animator can take that and using some sort of computer animation software, yeah, get a, a wider mm. range of movements. And they make a, they make a lot of use of this in the mm. in the very heavy talky scenes, like um, Ian and and Jules and Jules. Jean. Yeah, Jules. And, and and also the Doctor and the Jailer. So a lot of the scenes where people which just back and forth. Yeah, yeah. To save you, to save, because of course. Those are, I guess, in animation, the scenes where <laughs> things can look very dull if you don't add in extra business on people's faces. They've got to be doing something. They can't just be rolling their eyes and flaring their nostrils. <laughs> so they, um, their, their solution was to just have people moving their heads 
kind of subtle movements, right? Just subtle movements, just to give it looking like that it's not just some kind of anime, you know, yeah, you know, animated comic strip or something. The, the eyes were very active, weren't they? They were um, mm-hmm. looked CGI, completely CGI, and darting around yeah. all over the place. I found that quite distracting. Watching it again, I could see the that it was um, yeah, I could see the see the computer generated element mm. quite mm-hmm. clearly. So I, th- I didn't think it was entirely successful, but I somehow it did bring those scenes give those scenes a bit of life sometimes it seemed to be used a bit carelessly people just sort of moving around bobbing their heads around just for the sake of something happening mm-hmm. but if the alternative is just to have a static <coughs> profile shot i mean it, it is very different from what we've had recently where characters have a quite a limited range of of poses i thought the likenesses were quite successful using this method Apart from the Doctor, who was the worst at all of all? If you're if you're talking about the Hartnell, yeah, yeah, I, th- I thought he was the only one that wasn't okay. Do you think it's a poor likeness to start with, or just the way they've animated it, or both? I think Hartnell is a very difficult one to to get because I I mean I think that he is somebody who, and I I was looking through a review I wrote and I and I posted a couple different pictures of his like different looks that he had during the time of, of the Doctor, and it's just like there's a lot of different just a lot of different looks in general that he has, uh, yeah. and he he I think he's a tough one to get. I think like him and Davison would be really tough to to do successfully but i also think that the the anime the animators or whoever did the character drawing for hartnell didn't really get him either no they weren't familiar with the program so they i don't think they had long enough to soak up just soak up what the doctor looks like and how he moves and that, therefore they didn't know when they were getting it wrong. I also think too that you know we've we've tried a couple different projects uh, with Ian after after Rain didn't work out, and uh, I've I've ha- I've had a number of people who are trying to create character designs for especially Hartnell Doctor, and I've never I've only found one person who got it right. You know who really got it. It just every single time it's interesting. Ian would look at one, he'd be like, "That's it, that's the Doctor." And I think to myself, "This does not look like William Hartnell at all." And it's it's very diff. I found it very difficult to find people to get that essence of of what Hartnell was. It's interesting. It's not like it's hardly that he hasn't got any character in his face, but it it, it tends if you just take a free a in every in, in any individual picture of him, he can often look like a completely different person. Totally. The covers of those first three Target novels, um, the original Achilles pictures, mm-hmm. they all look like William Hartnell. But if you line him up together, they don't look, really look like the same person. And I think <laughs> that's, that may be the problem people have. Absolutely yeah. no. And 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 in contrast, I think if you look at Planet Fifty Five's the moon base, I think that they absolutely nailed Troughton perfectly. I think it's it's a triumph. The, the, the same people did uh, the Tenth Planet, didn't they? Absolutely. Yeah. And and they they make a better fist of it. That that thetomation thing I was talking about, assuming that is the code name for this um, method of morphing people's faces, they could completely drop it. Whatever it is, very distinctive in Rain, and they don't use it again in Tenth Planet or Moon Base, which is interesting because it seemed to me quite a cheap and cheerful way of filling time in long talky scenes. But they obviously put a... I can only assume they spent a lot longer and a lot more money on the other two. And they do look better as a result. And and also, and I've I've never heard this to be confirmed. Maybe other people have, and someone might say to you, might write in afterwards, like, well, this is common knowledge. But I was un- under the understanding that uh, at least episode five 
of the Reign of Terror animation had been heavily edited. One or the other had been heavily edited, and if you really watch it, you can kind of see that there's some shots that have been zoomed in for no reason. I mean, there's like a shot of Ian's crotch for no reason suddenly. (laughs) Uh, I'm like, okay. And there's just, I think that they were having, you know, first of all, I I had, and I'm saying this for myself because I, I do have a little bit of like uh, sour grapes. I'm going to be very honest. But at the same time, it's their first go at it. And, you know, they, they put out a all things considered, you know, a pretty incredible product for probably not getting paid hardly anything. But, you know, at the same time, you can kind of watch it and you're just like, whoa, why is that? Because it gets fuzzier in some areas and like they're they're uh. zooming in on people. And you're like, what is happening here? What happened to... Um, and I've heard, and this could be completely wrong, but I've heard people say it's because the the brief was to make it look a little bit more dynamic than what a 1960s program right. would okay. look like. And what ends up happening, if, if we're correct in what we're hearing, is that it, it strayed a little bit too far and it just looked like, how is this even connected to the other four episodes of this story? So Well, exactly. It's interesting that that might have come from the top because it got a lot of criticism for, to be diplomatic, the, the lack of adherence to the, the directorial style. There, yes. were, there are no telesnaps to base it on, so we can, we can forgive them for not being absolutely faithful to what mm-hmm. it, but, we, but there are four other episodes, and there are camera scripts. And I think mm-hmm. it got criticism for the fact that they, they acknowledged they hadn't bothered with the camera scripts. They looked at them and then thought, nah. And a lot of people blame the animators, and it would be interesting if... Some of the decisions are just are just almost trippy, though. I mean, there's one... Yeah. Th- th- there's a scene where Leon is talking to Barbara in episode four, and they cut three times within three words of a sentence. Yeah. <laughs> and it's... And this just isn't how... It, it's all supposed to be in long shot, and, you know, everyone, everyone you know, hitting their blocking and whatnot. <laughs> but it's such a jarring experience watching it the first time. On review this time, funnily enough, I sort of tried to get into it and enjoyed it a lot more. But certainly as a, a representation of of what's missing, it, it's nowhere near it. And I, 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 it's the same with the Macro Terror. I don't really like it where people take artistic license with something when, to my mind, I just want to watch a near as damn it recreation of, of what's there. I'll tell you when when we were doing so we did a test scene uh, for Dan Hall of our Reign of Terror and the, mm. and the scene that we took was uh, the scene in episode five where uh, Ian comes back and tells Barbara that he killed that Leon's dead and that uh, that's the scene with Jules and they're talking about uh, you know patriotism and all that yeah uh, so that's the scene that we did and we did it twice. And the feed, you know, there's a lot of feedback the first time. There was there was some feedback the second time. I mean, this was this was new, you know, the early, early for us. But the one thing that uh, I got from a you know kind of a higher up fan who was working with Dan was that he's like, well, you gotta you gotta you gotta make it flashier you know that you guys are just staying on these characters there has to be stuff happening and and i went ah. back to them i went back to them i'm like well through ian because i didn't actually talk to them directly and i said mm-hmm. you know and ian was with me of course if anyone knows ian you'll know that he's he's a stickler <laughs> for that kind of like if you know if there is a fly that you know got in the studio and landed on the camera he'd want that in the animation <laughs> so we we um, I went back and we're like, this is that we went off the camera script. We see these as 
a, a, a record of what was made, not not new animation. You know, this this Absolutely. is meant to be, in our opinions, looking at this as if the episodes were here, this is what we have in its place. And, you know, some of the some of the feedback we got about that, quite frankly, frightened me a little bit because it's like in my fan mind, I'm like, no, this is not how these should look. And, you know, so Reign of Terror, you could see, like I said, there was editing done to it. But by the time you get to 10th Planet and Moonbase, you could tell that they were listening to feedback of other people who were kind of in agreement with what we were saying. Very interesting. Hmm. Yeah, that, surely the bottom line is that um, it's a matter of, you know, personal preference, whether you think they should be allowed to um, use more artistic license on stories that don't exist at all, like Macro or Power of the Daleks. But here, when you've got to fit in, when you're right in the middle, you're surrounded by the real thing. It just seems <laughs> asinine totally. to try and turn it into anime. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing, too. It's 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 very much like there now now if there's a couple episodes existing of the story, they're going to reanimate those, like with faceless ones, but you're not going to reanimate four episodes of uh, Reign of Terror so that you can fit it around two existing ones or likewise with the invasion, mm. you know? So yeah, it was, it, it was, it was kind of, it was, it was kind of a gut punch to be very honest at the time, because all we wanted to do was preserve Doctor Who's history and not to sound dramatic about it, but I mean, it, it did feel like an opportunity to fill in some gaps. And, and in, in our fan minds, we were just like, this doesn't do that. Well, it's very consistent with Dan's approach, wasn't it? to his yeah. time on the DVD range with um, oh, this documentary you've made. It just tells me how they made the television story. Who cares about that? I, I want to know, <laughs> make all sorts of mad connections to the real world. That's what, that's what the young people want to watch. They don't, they're not interested in archive television history. I don't want to sound like a jerk because I love the DVD range, but sometimes I felt like the episodes came in second to uh, everything else on those discs. You know, and, and that's not to say that the episodes weren't beautifully remastered or whatnot, but it just felt like that there's all these odd sort of tangential sort of pieces to them, whereas it just seemed like, I, I guess I'm just very square in my thinking. Like, I just want a straightforward approach, and I really want to make sure that these episodes are getting the highest bitrate possible so that they look the best they can look. Yes, I think most of the people who work on the range were more in sympathy with your position, weren't they? So, Greg, you've, you've alluded to it a couple of times, working with Ian on an animation pitch. How did that come about? What's the background there? Because Ian had done various projects, uh, and I forget the order, but there had been a Mission to the Unknown animation, mm -hmm. uh, which presumably you were involved mm -hmm. with, Greg. Yes. And yeah. then there was the, the Sharda animation. Talk a little bit about, about those and your involvement and, and how they came about. Sure. Uh, when it when it came with Shada, the the when I found out that uh, Ian was going to uh, be working on Shada, uh, he called me the the minute I I sent him a note through Facebook Messenger saying I think I I can I might be able to help you. Let me know what you need. And so a little bit about myself is I work in. Uh, in what's called post-production. So you have three three levels of production for television, commercials, film, whatever. You have pre-production and post-production. So I work on the back end of production. Once everything is shot and everything is ready to be assembled, that's where I come in. I'm a post-production producer. And uh, so 
when I wanted to be able to help out with Shada, I've always been interested in Shada. I was always interested in like getting a nice quality copy of Ian Shada because I found that that was my first version of Shada I've ever seen. And I've really wanted to get something really nice to, to kind of remember it by. And who else could I get that from other than the man who made it himself? So, you know, uh-huh. him and I had talked about that a number of times. But what ends up happening is... I end up working with him because I thought I could help him like get CGI spaceships made because I know a number of people who work in CGI and whatnot. It didn't go that way. He went with somebody else, but I still helped in various ways. But I really tried to help out on Mission the Unknown because uh, there was a person in the States who was kind of spearheading that and animating that with a very small team. I mean, a ridiculously small team to do that. And if you've seen the Mission the Unknown that he created, it's, it's mm. fantastic. It is fantastic, yeah. So basically, when that was coming up, Ian called me up and he said that there is a possibility, um, well, there isn't a possibility that they're animating. He just said that they are animating Doctor Who again, and the first one that Dan wants to go with is Reign of Terror. We were having a disagreement with the person who was animating Mission to the Unknown, and that became ugly. That became ugly for both sides, and to this day, neither side agrees on what had happened neither side has taken kind of a step down to say that it wasn't the other you know the that it wasn't the other person's fault so you know mm-hmm. it's just one of those situations that uh has you know it's it, only reason why it has kind of downplayed itself is because no one's talked to each other about it but one way or the other person who's working on mission got very upset with ian and didn't want to work with him anymore didn't want to finish finish mission the unknown uh so that battle was going on in the meantime he had asked me ian that is has asked me to go ahead and put together a a uh, a team to create animation and i had looked at this as a possibility that we could we could do just more than rain that, you know, if we have the opportunity to, we could actually create a, like a school program at a college ah. and different levels of animation. And you create this like churning out material, you know, on a regular basis. And the place where I worked uh, was slightly interested actually in subsidizing the cost also. So it became, it could have been very lucrative for the BBC for making these low, low cost at the same time, nice quality. And at the further, taking a little bit further, teaching students how to, how to do animation. And, and all the levels to it. And, and it would have been wor- great. I was working with the Art Institute of Minnesota. We had met a number of times to talk about what a, cr- a curriculum would look like for such a thing. But in the meantime, we needed to get something over to Dan to start looking at. I had no idea who else was involved. You know, I mean, this was just something that, you know, I'm kind of taking marching orders from Ian. Um, and to be very honest, to this day, I'm not even 100% sure if we were really an option or if Dan was just kind of you know, you know, keeping mm. Ian going because what I think what Dan was concerned about was that he wanted to see Shada done at the time that Ian said it was going to be done. And he wanted to see mission, the unknown done and finished and completed, even though he wasn't, he might've bought it to release it, but he just wanted to see if Ian could finish something because at the time Ian had a lot of projects going on. He wanted to recolor, mm. uh, I think, uh, Invasion of the Dinosaurs Part 1. I think he had, like, even was trying to do something with Ambassadors of Death Color. I think he was looking at Mind of Evil. So he had all of these projects going on with a lot of different people. And he was telling 
he was talking to Dan about all this, and I think Dan was just like, well, show me, complete one thing. It's one thing to be able to be like, <laughs> yeah. oh, yeah. I have all these projects, but actually finish something. Was he not also recording all the missing stories from season 23 at the same time? <laughs> As if that wasn't enough. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's a whole other, yeah, that's a whole other thing. Because because you're right. You're absolutely right that this is all something Simply animations. <laughs> so much going on. And that's and that's that's the point, right? That I mean you can you're getting overwhelmed just talking about it, let alone living it, right? <laughs> so and the thing was, it's like we were working on Mission Unknown and I got a I was working on it with like Derek Handley also and um the one thing I learned at that point was that Ian has these journals back in the day when he was watching these episodes go out live he had these journals and he wrote meticulous notes about what was going on in the episodes what you know he was doing drawings he did all of this stuff to it and um i went to i stayed at ian's in 2017 over over christmas and it was very nice and i told him i wanted to take like images of of his journals and he's like, sure. And I stayed in the room with all these journals. And I thought, you know, I could take pictures of like four journals and be called good. He had made, I think, 36 journals, something like that, during just of Doctor Who in the 60s that he watched. And, you know, I'm talking full journal books, not, not a couple pages here and there. He filled like 36 journals. He also tried to uh, recreate the script by memory after he watched the episode. Or I think what he did is he re maybe recorded it, and then when the tape ran out, he tried to recreate the rest of the episode, something like that. I forget exactly what, but they are very detailed. Wow. So these are great things for us to use and whatever. But I think where the one of the issues came down to was uh, one of the characters at the beginning of the story who uh, was first attacked by Varga, and this is for Mission the Unknown, uh, Ian strictly re remembers this guy wearing a watch, and this character in the animation didn't have a watch. And so he, he, you know, like I said, Ian is very much, if this doesn't have a watch, this is a bastardization of, of the episode. <laughs> you know, it, it just, that is really what it comes down to. And, and I know we're laughing about it, but that's just how, you know, Ian is wired. And, and I, I actually really like it. But the problem is, it's like the animation been done. And that's where I think really the start of the downhill battle went with, with that group working on it. Because they're like, well, this costs more money. It's like, no. This is what, you know, you should be, you know, doing because I want changes. So it just became unfortunate. But so knowing knowing this, they held back Mission the Unknown because they knew that if they delivered it, there's a chance that other people would be working on Reign of Terror and not them. Um, mm -hmm. And so it, you know, they, they're kind of self-preserving themselves, which I get. At the same time, I had a team ready to go to start working on Reign of Terror. Whether or not we really even had a chance or not, that's, I'm not even going to say that. So uh, we did character designs, and these character designs um, had different versions of it, and we'd keep showing Ian first, and then we'd show Dan. And at one point, Ian said to us, um, he kind of, Dan kind of wants characters to look more like Disney animation. And I was like, Okay. Can I have the real can I have the real <laughs> feedback now? I mean, what did you really want? You know, I mean, come on. You... I, I should explain at home that Paul and I have just pulled the most horrendous <laughs> faces. <laughs> I mean, it's it's 
utterly an incredible. It's utterly ridiculous. And so, but but we did our best. And at the same time, I think a lot of us who are doing animation of any kind, even if it's just people just kind of seeing what characters look like and whatnot, we're all kind of going off of the Cosgrove Hall look because that's mm. what we knew. And we're trying to do something like that. Even Mission of the Unknown kind of has a bit of that to it. Mm. Um so I, when I did an article about uh, animating Shada on my blog, I did put uh, the character designs for uh, Ian, Susan, Jules, and Barbara on, and they have a bit of the Disney-fied look to them. And they play better in animation than we expected them to. And like I said, we did that scene twice. Uh, the first time was horrendous. I made, I made the backgrounds, and they were absolute you know, garbage. And then we brought uh, <laughs> my friend in uh, from work, who is probably one of the best artists I've ever seen in my life. And he did the backgrounds for the Reign of Terror uh, that we did, the scene we did. And they're absolutely incredible. Uh, mm. But what ends up happening is, you know, like I said, we got the feedback of like, you're, you're staying on shots too long. What can you do to make this more exciting? Can you have like it crane down or something? It's like it never craned down in Reign of Terror. <laughs> you know, there's none of that ever happened. Um, and, you know, it's just like and, and we have like three days to make it work anyways. And it's I really literally had one person working on it at the time, the animation. So. We did our best, um, and then we heard nothing. And then about an hour before the official announcement came about Reign of Terror on BBC uh, Doctor Who website, Ian gets a call from Dan saying, oh, yeah, no, we're going with uh, Thetimation, and, uh, you know, sorry. Thanks thanks for helping. Thanks for, uh, you know, putting it in. And it was, it was a bit of a, a kick you know, a kick in the gut, even though I think we all knew it was coming. At the same time, too, it's I kind of feel like that they were probably always going to be the option that, that they would have started with. Mm. And it's fine. You know, at the time, it was like, this is BS. I can't believe this happened, whatever. But obviously, there's, a, there's always so much more that happens that I'm, you know, me just help trying to coordinate getting these animations done. That's, you know, way above what, what we know about. And I don't know all the conversations with uh, Ian and Dan, but we did have these come in at very low cost, very, very low cost to, to create these. But our, our thing that we were thinking of doing was keeping the, keeping the, the team very small, as small as mm. possible. And then if we were to go with the school stuff, then you're not really paying them anyway. <laughs> they're, they're slave labor. Did I say slave? I mean, learning, <laughs> learning experiences is what, I've, what I meant to say. But quite prescient with the, with the educational idea because we've recently had the, the recreation of uh, Mission to the Unknown by the University of Central Lancashire. So, you know, on the right track and a, a, fantastic, a fantastic opportunity for the students to, to contribute to something that might see the light of day in a broader context than just between the student and the teacher. Absolutely. And that's kind of what we wanted to do, because you got to you got to think creatively, too, about how can I do something? But at the same time, it can't cost any money. Literally, it, you know, it just can't yeah. cost any money. Yeah. Um, what we were also going to do was we had uh, once we knew that we weren't doing rain, we were still trying to get in. And on that same site I talked about, that's about animating Shada on my blog. We have character mm. designs that we created for uh 
the William Hartnell's doctor. And this, this just goes to show how good our, our character designer was because they look like that they're traced because the, the features are so good, but they're not traced. The, he did it all freehand. And what's even better about it, I just think I've seen so many amazing things that he'd done that has such detail you know, we thought about how like Yeti would look being animated. I mean, at that time, Web of Fear was only still just one episode in existence. There was just so much that we were hoping to be able to do. And uh, I think, and I'm not certainly saying that we would have done a better job than what's currently out there, but it would have been fun to see what, what we could have created for sure. Yeah. Well, the, 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 the Sharda that exists, the uh, Levine animation is outstanding. Yeah. And Mission to the Unknown is, is the definitive recreation. So even, even though it's not commercially available, and, and uh, I don't suppose Ian's very pleased that there are copies around, or he certainly wasn't, they are the definitive versions. Um, and, and he and yourselves and whoever else was involved should be very proud of that, I think. I agree. You know, and and Shada, I, I and this is just me. Uh, Shada, I think, is superior. His Shada is superior to the officially released one, uh, just character design wise and whatnot. It's just a personal mm. preference. But uh, the thing that I mean, he was pretty heartbroken. I think about Mission, especially getting out because, you know, he he commissioned it to start as a private project for him and those who worked on it with him. You know, he's, even though you may not see it online, he's actually a very, a giving person. He's actually a very, he shares everything if you're working with mm. him. But there's a mm. reason why you're getting it from him because he, you, you're going to need it for something you're working on with him. But if you worked on it with him, you're going to, you're going to be a part of it. You're going to reap the benefit. And I can, mm. I can, I can say that it was leaked from uh, the side that was unhappy with him because it's the HD version that uh, got leaked at 16 by 9 and that was never that was never something that made it over to Ian and uh, mm. they, they've always said nope we haven't leaked it but you know you have and you know that's what seven eight years ago now anyway so who cares it's out there and a lot of people have enjoyed it and to your point it, it is the definitive recreation of that story in, in my opinion too albeit without the wristwatch <laughs> no it was added in it got in there oh was it <laughs> yeah it got in there you know oh uh, fantastic you don't say no to ian it gets in there but it, there, there's tears <laughs> and angry calls and uh lot lots of yelling but it gets there is it related to the director of that cats movie who kept asking him to paint in cats <laughs> bum holes and then and then paint them out again uh, <laughs> be an artist <laughs> what <laughs> <laughs> about that. At, I mean, how can I forget up, about look that? Look it up later, yeah. Tim. I'm not sure it's true, but I, w I want it to be true. Oh, I've heard it definitely true, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and why not? I mean, <laughs> that's what made it a horrible movie, too. That would, would, would have made it an amazing movie if they had the bump holes. Yeah. Release the anus cut. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, on that bombshell... The missing episodes aspect is another frustrating one, similar to Marco Polo, in that it's one of those serials which were part of that first sales package or that first couple of tranches of episodes which seem to sell everywhere. Uh, there are there are long-held rumors of, of four and five existing in, in collectors' hands. 
it's quite an interesting one, Rain, in that we've had episodes returned from both private collections and an overseas broadcaster. Yep. And um, unprecedented. And it's the first instance of two independent inquiries finding <laughs> finding <laughs> missing episodes in an overseas archive within two weeks of each other. So the basic timeline is in 1982. As of 1982, we didn't have any of the um, serial. The BBC hadn't kept the negatives, along with Marco and uh, Crusade. And then episode six was discovered in the UK with a private collector. This was a stored field print, which means it was one of the later prints we made, which weren't sold anywhere near as widely. Hmm. A couple of years later, we find episodes one, two, three, and six in Cyprus. I say we find. <laughs> Um, we'll discuss exactly who found them later on, but the <laughs> facts are that they've they found four of them, two were missing. These were suppressed fields, so these would have been early sales, as as indeed we know they were. Yeah. And the year after that, we find episode three again, but it isn't... <laughs> this was with the same private collector who'd had episode six. Well, they always um, turn up in pairs, don't they? So it seems that this is the only time a private collector's had more than one episode of the same story, I think. Both the episodes this private collector had turned out to be duplicates, but they were superior to the ones that were found in Cyprus, so they, they weren't certainly weren't redundant. Um, mm. Another, which is an addendum, an episode, ep- a copy of episode one showed up on eBay in the early 2000s, I think. That was a suppressed field, so Paul mm. Venezis says this is evidence of a third copy. And that's one of the reasons why he thinks, why he claims to think that uh, it's more likely to turn up because we've got we've got we've got extant prints from at least three different sets. That's interesting. So um, yes, Paul has said a number of times that he thinks it's the most likely um, story for more episodes to turn up. He says that's just because there's evidence that there were uh, so many copies still around as of the seventies. It maybe he knows more. Maybe he has a suspicion that this collector who had two episodes may, <laughs> for no apparent reason, forty years later, be hanging on to, mm. to the others. Who knows? It is a long rumoured one that, that people have said exists in in private hands. I think it goes as far back as Paul Lee's <laughs> Paul Lee's <laughs> uh, blog, Miss, Missing Without a Trace. Yeah, he is. He put all the rumours out there that what he knew at the time. But the problem was he. Put them out there as if they're fact. So there you go. We um we don't we can't say much about the um the collector angle, but Cyprus is very interesting, unusually interesting mm. for a number of reasons. One fact about Cyprus is that they had split the prints across two separate sites, which is why we don't have episodes four and five. Uh, the ones that we did get were still there in the eighties. The ones that we didn't get were in a facility that was blown up in the in the war yeah along with along with the the better portion of cyprus's um film history unfortunately yeah but yeah. but cyprus is one of those funny countries where they didn't buy they didn't purchase the cereal in a similar way i think to the crusade in new zealand in that, in that they were sent there on approval if you like and then were rejected for one reason or the other i think that's certainly what what john Preddle says hmm it's not what Paul Venezes said, mm. oddly Ooh. enough. Ooh. And, um, I mean, considering they talk a lot, <laughs> and you, they do seem to disagree. Oh, on to it. each other. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I thought you were complaining about them being but chatterboxes. No, no, they talk to each other a lot. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, John makes the 
fair assumption that, that they'd ordered the first eight cereals with the full intention of buying them and screening them. And then, as happened in Australia and New Zealand and elsewhere, occasionally they rejected Reign of Terror, and that's why it was still there. But Paul, last time he talked about it, which was only a couple of years ago, hmm. says uses the fact that it was still in Cyprus, it was in Cyprus who hadn't bought it, as evidence that Cyprus was some kind of hub where the BBC stored prints to move them around to other nearby countries. It's a very strange thing to suggest because it wasn't backed up by... He made this comment at the end of a quite long explanation of the history of his researches into Cyprus, but it hmm. didn't really... It wasn't really predicated on anything he'd said beforehand, so... Yet you know, going away from Doctor Who, you know, Paul, at the same time as getting the Reign of Terror episodes, ended up from that archive getting 11 episodes of Bleak House uh, and 12 mm. episodes of Zed Cars. And I only, did. And all only reason I'm bringing that up is because, you know, maybe, maybe they were, hor you know, st keeping stuff there, you know, because I don't know if, I, I do not know if, if uh, Cyprus, you know, was had had a long history of showing Zed cars or anything, and Bleak House goes back to like I think 1959 or something like that. It would be interesting to know if those uh, if if they came on the same ship, as it were, from Uganda, yeah, as part of the same bicycling of BBC material. That'd be interesting to know. But if it's from 1959, perhaps not. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I'll just read out exactly what he said, just in case I've garbled it. It was sent there because of sent to Cyprus because of where it was. The BBC used it as a kind of hub to redistribute around. I'm certain that some other stations in different parts of the globe would have had a similar arrangement with the BBC. It's he seems very sure of that. Hmm. And doesn't give us any reason to <laughs> to understand why you're gonna, so gonna start rumours, so Paul, about about hubs. No, I, I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Paul Venez is starting all these hub rumours. You'd think he'd know better, wouldn't you? Well, I'll just throw that one out there. Um, there are mm. differences of opinions among the two experts. There is the, the op John Preddle with the obvious suggestion that they were going to buy it, and Paul suggesting that it got sent there with no intention that Cyprus would purchase it and show it, but just look after it for a while until they wanted to, until it was requested from some other nearby country and sent on. Well, with all due respect to Paul Venezes, I think I'm going to I'm going to go with the most recent piece of research that's been published, and mm. stands unchallenged in that it hasn't challenged by Paul presumably because it's still there. Why interesting as to why the only Doctor Who that would be there is the one that they didn't purchase, in that it wasn't recalled. I think I think in both theories, it, yeah. Uh, John doesn't say this. I mean, I would have assumed that it's because the BBC, the BBC didn't recall it because they didn't know it was there. Perhaps their records only show sales and don't show mm. movements, for example. Yeah, interesting. Well, we don't know what their records showed. So, And again, well, I don't want to derail this completely, but there is a difference of opinion on exactly how the bicycling system works. Mm -hmm. John, John suggested the BBC is managing this centrally, telling you know, country A to send it on to country B and managing it like like a general yeah. manoeuvring his, his armies on a map. Yeah. Whereas Paul suggests that when a country knew it needed a certain story, they would put the word out on the bicycle chain network that they wanted it, and other countries yeah. would spontaneously send them in. Again, he's only mm. mentioned this once. I've never seen anyone else suggest it, or 
back it up with any evidence, but he mentions it in, this, in the same context of Prince moving from Cyprus to Uganda. Uh, that's where their copy of Marco Polo would have ended up. Yeah, interesting. And and, and back in the days before Phil Morris was a, a, a professional online critic of tweet-alongs, <laughs> um, <laughs> he... It's quite a vocation. He, he once said that using Cyprus as the example of prints ending up where you wouldn't expect them to be based on sales, that this is the classic example. The inference being that there are other examples mm. um, which he is aware of. And we don't know whether he's talking about Doctor Who per se. Uh, but if you follow Broadcast's uh, logic and, and John Preddle's logic, that film should absolutely be there. And it's a very logical reason it is there. Um, and the Doctor Who that, that Phil Morris returned to the BBC in 2013, they were found exactly where they were supposed to be. So he's not doing himself any favours no. in trying to combat <laughs> no. um, the age-old rumours that, 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 that certain films were found in Africa when they shouldn't have been there, is he? No, absolutely. It's just, he, does, he does that quite a lot. Um, seems <laughs> to give away some facts that would back up rumours right. without apparently having realised he's done it. <laughs> yeah yeah now you know when we're talking about bicycling and at the risk of derailing this um has there ever been any mentioned about the supposed like tie hub you know that there is a, a possibility of some i don't know if there's one or multiple ones you know thinking about tie which you know phil took on to become tia um you know that there that there was a possibility that there's these this location that held prints also and that's where some of the those prints or some prints would have come from to be sent out to uh stations well apart from the allusion to cyprus being such a such a place i'm not sure whether whether they were associated with television international enterprises um i don't think there's been a, an official acknowledgement but paul said uh, recently, I think maybe in our last podcast, that a friend of ours was at the uh, Missing Episodes event in Rickmansworth a few years ago and was talking to Paul. Paul, Morris and I were, were also there, but not in that conversation. And Paul was talking about, um, again, not in disagreement with the, the rumours of 2013, that there was a, that he was quite optimistic about um, Ethiopia holding mm. a lot of prints. Well, yes, I mean he was op he was optimistic about that in two thousand two thousand eleven when he drew up his list for uh, for Carolyn Skinner at the BBC. Yeah. Ethiopia was conspicuously there as a possible source for Marco Rain and Crusade. Yeah, and and lo and behold, Television International Enterprises were heavily involved in the Ethiopian Television Authority. So if we if we're moving on to discussing the possibility of more of this showing up. There seem to be quite a few options. There are persistent rumours that the only two episodes we need might might be held by collectors in the UK, but also the entire thing could be sitting next to Marco in Ethiopia with their very good archival practices. And it sits on a different bicycling chain to the, the Cyprus then, presumably, does it, Paul? Yes, I think the sale was almost certainly uh, made directly to Ethiopia, possibly with brand new prints. The thumbs up Stordfield prints in 1971, I think, and Cypress very early on bought the Suppressfield prints, so they were completely different. And mm. just remember that Marco Polo is actually up on iTunes, 
you know, for the last, you know, seven years just <laughs> waiting to be released. Once I get through all the legal stuff, it's just yeah. a matter of pressing a button. It's going to be in your house, Paul. So We're trying to keep this podcast somewhat grounded in reality. <laughs> <laughs> I took it about as far away from reality that you could possibly imagine then. <laughs> uh, no, it wasn't you. It wasn't you who did it first anyway. Um, so in conclusion then, with, uh, with the chances of rain turning up it sounds quite a good one in that we've had multiple copies turn up in 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 britain possibly from two different two different sets of prints yeah indeed and um ethiopia remains undisclosed yes and there were there, there were around 20 countries which bought it which which, which perhaps leaves the possibility of it, uh, it lying elsewhere there were there were 20 and disentangling those Bicycling chains would be would keep John Preddle busy for the rest of his life, I think. But it's entirely possible that they were moved on very quickly. I meant to say this last time about Marco. Um, I, I accidentally gave the impression that I thought that there might have been 24 separate copies of Marco Polo <laughs> zooming around to these 24 countries. Of course, if you look at the early sales, they're, they're all broadcasting one month apart. So these could very well have been sequenced to be moved on. And I think... I think Paul V has said this, that um, the the old adage that why haven't we got Marco, there were so many prints of it, is just f based on a faulty premise. There were, might have been f no more prints than there were for stories that were only sold to half a dozen countries. And that the Bison chain was running at peak efficiency back in those days. And in terms of whether or not we want to see it again, I mean, I think a lot of people have been <laughs> guilty of saying... But I don't think many people were very excited about it, even before the animation. Now that it's been animated, a lot of people say, right, that's gone right to the bottom of my list, I don't care. But you pointed out, and I, uh, in your review, that episodes four and five are where the story gets good. They, they might be the two best episodes. So... Listeners, that concludes our review of The Reign of Terror. Thank you so much for coming on, Greg. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. And thank you, Paul. Thank you. And uh, thank you, listeners, for, for tuning in again. I, I can say with confidence that you have tuned in again, because otherwise you won't be hearing this. Thanks indeed to, to you folks out there. If you want to get in touch, I'm on Twitter at Doctor Who Podcasters with a DR. Paul is at Mr. Paul Morris. And hopefully... You'll join us next time for the Crusade. Good. <laughs>